This week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, hey, what, what are these catheters that you're bringing by? She goes, oh, these are radial catheters that we use in the cath lab. You'll, you'll never need these. And, wow. I, and that, that, okay. you know, when someone tells me that, and, and again, this may <laughs> be my personality, it may just be, um, you know, the interventional radiologist attitude in general. But I said, what, what do you mean I would never use those? Um, she said, well, this is for radial stuff. You guys don't do radial access. And then I, I started thinking, I was like, why can't we do radial access? Welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues out there and learn the tips, techniques, and nuances of the devices in your cabinet. Uh, this is Chris Beck here coming from New Orleans. Uh, tonight, I'm excited to introduce our um, our guest, uh, Dr. Aaron Fishman from Sinai. Um, Aaron, you want to say hello? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No problem. All right. So we're going to jump into it. So clearly we got uh, Fishman on the mic. So we're going to be talking some radial access stuff. Um, first, we'll just start out. Uh, Aaron, do you want to, um, uh, you know, for the uninitiated, maybe introduce yourself and uh, talk a little bit about your practice? Absolutely. So uh, like you guys said, my name's Aaron Fishman. I'm from Mount Sinai in New York City. Uh, I've been uh, doing interventional radiology since I finished fellowship in 2000 and <laughs> I, 2009. Um, All right. That being said, uh, you know, I, I really didn't start doing radial access until 2012. So there was a period of time where I actually did think that the femoral artery was really the, the way to go. But I, I've changed my, my thought on that, as you guys will see over the next 30 minutes or so. Yeah, no doubt. Well, like along that vein, um, how did you like, you know, what, what happened in 2012? How, what, what first got you interested in radial access to begin with? Well, you know, that's a, it's really interesting how this all played out. We were, you know, I, I, we were doing a lot of chemoembolization back, back in, uh, you know, the, the early, you know, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say the the bulk of our practice, probably 75% uh, was probably interventional oncology at that time. And so we were really, really in the weeds, so to speak, with uh, chemoembolization and, and, I came across an article in, in, in 2012, which was published in Japan, um, the Shiozawa article, which looked at uh, transradial approach for transcatheter chemoembolization in people with HCC. Um, and it, at the time, we really had not even considered using the radial access. It was sort of a, um, you know, something that we knew or that I knew was being, being done in cardiology for, for a period of time, but we never really thought that it would it would be useful for interventional radiology for for a variety of reasons. One of my my reps at the time used to bring by catheters, um, you know, sort of catheters that she was carrying around for the cath lab while she was coming to us for other reasons, and she would sort of just leave them on the side of the room. And I would ask her, you know, hey, what what are these catheters that you're bringing by? She goes, oh, these are radial catheters that we use in the cath lab. You'll you'll never need these. And, wow. I, and that, that okay. you know, when someone tells me that, and, and again, this may <laughs> be my personality, it may just be, um, you know, the interventional radiologist attitude in general. But I said, what, what do you mean? I would never use those. Um, she said, well, this is for radial stuff. You guys don't do radial access. And then I, I started thinking, I was like, why can't we do radial access? It doesn't really make sense that cardiologists do this and we don't. Sure, um, sure. So... Uh, at the time we were doing femoral and I came across that, that article that I mentioned and I looked at it and I said, you know what, all they're really using in that article was a Cobra catheter. And we had that in our lab. So I said, what if 
we did a couple cases and see how it goes. And so she said, well, she'd bring some stuff by. We'd try it out. And I said, well, I have cases tomorrow. Why don't we do it tomorrow? And she didn't really think that, that I would say that I wanted to do it the next day. But, you know, that was right. just what we had. We had cases and I said, let's try it. So we did. And, um, you know, as, as you guys would probably imagine, some of those, some of those early cases were, were challenging. I mean, the technique that was described in Japan in 2003 was different than what uh, we do now. But at the same sure. time, we tried to mimic it and, and see if we could, we could do it. And it worked out, but there was a lot of growing pains, as you guys will probably uh, want to know a little bit about. Um, but just to go a step further, yeah, the reason that we uh, were interested, and, and, and you know, we're always trying to do, do more in IR, and at Sinai we're trying to sort of advance the field a little bit, and that's just generally the way that we approach cases. And um, We had a couple brachial access interventions at that time that we thought were suboptimal. You know, obviously mm-hmm. brachial yeah. access is, is, is not without challenge. Uh, you know, you know, hematomas, uh, nerve injury, things like that, that, um, you know, we, we thought problem solving, you know, maybe radial access was a better approach for these complex interventions, but we had no experience in transradial at the time. So we said, um, you know, maybe, maybe we have to really delve into this and see if this, this makes sense. And so I, I took it upon myself to, uh, to try it out. And, uh, that was sort of the beginning. That's kind of funny. So the it's so it's uh, is that the paper was kind of timely, and then you ran into a rep who who happened to kind of like put a bug in your ear about some radial access, and then and then the rest is history. Okay, uh, good timing. Um, so you know we're gonna we're gonna jump into uh, you know maybe maybe what we call radial access one hundred and one. Uh, I should tell you, uh, Aaron, um, I, I'm a IR practitioner uh, in New Orleans. About eighty percent of my practice is, is in the city. And uh, we do a decent amount of, you know, I, I think what, you know, decent high-end IR, including, you know, interventional oncology, uh, women's health. And I'll, I'll tell you that in my practice, like, so I'm three years out. And when I first joined uh, my group, there, you know, there were some more senior IR guys in the group um, who I'm their junior by like 10 years. And so, and so when I first got in, um, even though I'd been trained to do radial access, I mean, we, I, I wouldn't say that we were a radial access first fellowship, um, but I felt comfortable with it. But, you know, first getting into the practice, you know, being a junior guy, um, I don't know. I, I felt like the kind of the spotlight was on me to kind of conform to their practice rather than, you know, go and, and turn everything upside down. Because I was definitely right. doing some things already very different from my partners. And so I, I shied away from radial access at first. But um, now I'm kind of starting to, to revisit it. Um, and so, you know, getting, getting kind of your take on it and maybe some of the roadblocks and, and tips and tricks to, to troubleshoot those roadblocks and be helpful. But I think like just for, um, maybe those who are, uh, either not as familiar with radial access, we'll, we'll just kind of start with some of the basics. So radial access 101, uh, I guess it always starts with, you know, the patient eval. Will you kind of take us like, you know, what that looks like, Aaron? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, just just to give you a, you know, to, before we go into that, I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just say that you're absolutely right. It's very difficult, I think, when you're doing a procedure that, um, you know, you know, maybe a newer type of procedure. I'll just give you an example: prostate embolization. And if you're sure. if you're starting that practice, uh, and then you're adding in, um, you know, something something else that's new for, you know, like radial access on top of that, it can be very challenging. And so, one of the reasons that we were successful in, in adopting transradial approach 
as I mentioned before, is that we were already doing a quite a bit of chemoembolization, and that was the the procedure that we that we chose to to start with. And uh, we had we had such a you know wealth of experience with that procedure from a femoral approach that it was it was sort of the right procedure to to try that on. And uh, you know I always tell people that if you're doing a lot of something like interventional oncology, chemoembolization, or Y ninety, or even fibroid embolization, where uh, you have a pretty busy practice. Those are probably the procedures to start with. Uh, in sure, general. maybe not like maybe not kick it off with your with your first prostate artery embolization. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. I I obviously use use radial axis for that as well. And and but again, if you're just starting out doing doing that procedure, it may not be. Uh, if you're not familiar with the radial approach, it may not be. You know, the best thing to start both at the same time. Uh, that being said you know, it, it really has a lot of advantages for that procedure in particular. But, you know, again, it's a complicated procedure in and of itself. And to add something that you're not familiar with on top of that could be very challenging. So I would caution people uh, that are just starting out uh, to start with things that they're very familiar with. Uh, but the one, you know, the, the one radial access 101, I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of teaching courses over the years and training a lot of people, fellows, residents, uh, medical students, even Mm-hmm. how to do it and giving a lot of, um, you know, uh, workshops at meetings over the years. And the basics, uh, you know, are really something that IRs are generally familiar with. I mean, there's a few things that we need to take into account that are different. Uh, but in general, you know, we, we are good at access as interventional radiologists. We use ultrasound. Um, you know, we're careful about our wires. Uh, we, you know, the, the complications that I read about in the beginning, dissections and and things like that in the radial artery, I just have not seen. And and those are probably related to good technique, good Seldinger technique, good good wire skills, good catheter skills. And I think uh just in general, if if you if you pay attention to those small details, you'll you'll have you'll have success. But there are certain things that are very specific to radial access. Um I always talk about the Barbeau exam, um, which is something that in general, um is a good screening test. I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that I need to do to the radial artery before I access it. I always ultrasound the radial and the ulnar. Uh, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's important to look at the size of the vessel before you access it. It's, it's really important to, uh, to assess the circulation of the hand using the Barbeau exam, uh, <clears throat> which, you know, I don't know if we need to go into too much detail, but there are cardiologists now that, that think that that may not be necessary, but you know, for me, it's it's important to understand the circulation in the hand. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't access a vessel, um, you know, because because you think the vessel is small if you if you know that you can do it. But you do need to understand uh, the risks, and you discuss those with the patient. If if somebody has a very small radial artery and a large ulnar artery, the chance that you'll access the vessel might be less, but the the risk to the hand is basically zero. Uh, but if somebody has a, a very small ulnar or even you know, an occluded ulnar accessing the radial artery may not be the best idea. So it's really important to understand the circulation. We don't really do that in the femoral artery, to be honest. And I think right. um, I'm uh, involved with with understanding the circulation to the hand that I ever did with the leg. Um, you know, part of that is just because it was relatively new at the time and I really wanted to understand it. But, you know, I, I don't remember looking when, I, you know, when I was, training or even shortly thereafter looking at the circulation around the femoral artery it's really i try to understand uh the size of the vessel with ultrasound and that type of thing it really wasn't something that we did right um, right so it, it's important to have that uh that to have that understanding and um it just leads to better outcomes in my view 
Yeah. Let me ask you this. Like you kind of touched on it as far as um, ultrasounding both the, the ulnar artery and radial artery. Do you, do you, are you just kind of looking for a size in general? I, I've heard some people in talks and, and I don't do this routinely, but do you go all the way up the forearm, like check for any, any radial uh, loops? Uh, and I'm actually, I'm assuming you're doing this on the table or maybe in clinic. Do you check for any loops um, like, you know, up to the elbow? Well, you know, we, we do a Barbeau exam and I look at the pulses and I check that in uh-huh. clinic when I see patients and I'll typically, if I have my uh, pulse oximeter in clinic with me, I'll document that in the medical record. Sure. Um, if, if you're in the room, uh, you know, we'll, my fellow or, or myself will check it again just to document it. And, and yeah, we'll ultrasound as far up as we think we need, need to go. But to be honest, the incidence of radial loops is so low that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's something that comes up as much as people talk about, um, it's really important to understand the circulation, the Barbeau exam, but the radial loop is pretty rare. Um, and so you may know that somebody has a radial loop from a previous procedure. And if that's the case, you may not want to access the radial artery if you know that. Uh, but, uh, there are a lot of techniques to do radial loop, uh, cannulation and access and procedures, but you just need to be aware that if there are other options, um, you know, you may not, you may not consider that your first choice. Sure. I, I guess, um, so maybe a good, I mean, just anecdotal, or, you know, we're not looking, n- nothing hard and fast, we're not going to pin you to it, but as far as Barbo D's or radial loops go, I mean, these, I mean, we talk about them all the time, but these are really the exception, right? Oh, I mean, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, most people say Barbo D is around 1%. Radial loop is probably less than that in my experience. Um, okay. But if you if you look at some of the literature, people talk about one percent for for that as well, or one or two percent. But you just don't see it that much. I mean, maybe you, maybe you have like a small loop, but you may not have a full loop. Yeah. Uh, but a real a real radial loop is 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 challenging. But you can you know fifty, sixty, seventy percent of the time you can get through it. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, uh, still, I, I still think we're in like kind of the basics here. What do you think? What do you think some of the things that, you know, having having seen the radial access um, practice mature, what are some of the things that you guys do now that maybe you weren't doing at first that maybe um, that some of our listeners uh, like I'm, I'm thinking in mind, like things that have like set me up for success on the front end, like um, I'll do the Imla cream with the nitro yeah. paste yeah. for, for patients in pre-op. I mean, that, that to me has been helpful. Like things like that that people may find helpful, like when they're just getting started that you may not necessarily think about. Well, you know, uh, this is something that, uh, you know, is pretty obvious for us, but ultrasound access is an absolute must. Cardiologists yeah. really weren't doing that at the time. And so when you look at papers that look at complication rates, occlusion rates, a lot of that has to do with, uh, in my view, not using ultrasound. So that that's always been our our experience. And so I wouldn't ever recommend anybody to do this without ultrasound. That's number one. Uh, number two would probably be uh, using the right equipment. You would never want to put in a non-hydrophilic sheath into the radial mm-hmm. artery. I, that would be an absolute no-no. Um, I know people have done that in the past. And you, and, and if you look at the, the literature regarding hydrophilic sheaths, you could get occlusion rates up to 20, 30% uh, using non-hydrophilic sheets. So that's something that it's a simple thing because we have that equipment now. Uh, and now we have such a, such a, a breadth of uh, different types of equipment. We have the slender sheath and the, and the ideal sheath that allow us to sort of downsize by one French, putting in, right. putting in a sheath and using a smaller catheter. Um, so that, that's really helpful. 
uh, having the right equipment, you, knowing the catheters that you need if you're doing liver work, making sure that you have the right length catheter and the, and the catheters that I like um, for liver are typically uh, the Sarah Jackie catheter, the ultimate catheter. Those are, those are really the best catheters, and they weren't really designed for our, our procedures, but they work really well. When you're going down to the pelvis, making sure that you have a 125 or longer catheter, like a, like a vertebral shape, mm-hmm. uh, I think is critical, and having longer microcatheters is also critical. Um, and then using the right closure bands and you know, using manual compression on the radio artery, I think, is probably not the way to go. I mean, I know some people have, have done that, uh, but in general... Uh, it's it's really not necessary. I mean, we have such good closure devices now for the radial artery that leave nothing in the vessel and allow you to uh, get hemostasis without occluding the vessel. It makes no it, there really, there really is no reason uh, to do that uh, with manual compression. But you know these are things that maybe come as second nature to us. But there are people that uh, take shortcuts, and I've seen a lot of um, you know operators that have that have not followed some of those uh, principles and get into problems. So, um, and just to drill down on some of this, so just to clarify, as far as like, you know, your celiac SMA, so any kind of liver directed therapy, the Sarah or Jackie catheters are, are 110 or, or maybe 130. Yeah. So those, you know, those come in 100 and 110, but I, I always use the 110 just, just because I think, um, you know, when we first started doing this, we were using the 100 centimeter Cobras, which was described in that paper from Japan. Mm-hmm. But about 20% of patients needed needed longer catheters. And so if you have a 110 catheter, you're going to be able to access the celiac in almost everybody. Um, and on top of that, you can take that 110 catheter and you can advance it a lot of times into the proper hepatic artery uh, with the 110 length, which is super helpful when you're doing some distal uh, embolization, stuff like that. Sure. So and then, 110 yeah, and then, is really critical. Absolutely. Okay. And then, and then, and then micro catheters, um, 150 CM. Yeah, you can do a lot. You can do some things with the one thirties, yeah. uh, but you know, in, in reality, there's really if you're doing a radial case, you really should have a one fifty available. And if you don't have it, any of the companies will be able to get you the catheters that you need if you ask. And uh, almost everything now is available in one fifty in addition to one thirty. That wasn't the case six years, six seven years ago. Sure, sure, absolutely. So we were. It was harder to get the 150 catheter. Now you can just get whatever you want in 150, but it really wasn't wasn't so easy to just just all of a sudden you know say hey I need a 150 microcatheter. Not everybody had them back then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing uh, I wanted to ask you, and and you know the the jury seems split on this when I talk to uh, other colleagues is is whether and we're we are assuming that everyone's doing left arm or left radial access. Um, we'll talk maybe a little bit about right radial access later, but um, the assumptions that everyone's doing left, left radial artery, um, how, do you, how do you position your patient? Do you like arm down by the side, arm out, maybe, you know, uh, arm slightly abducted? Well, you know, left radial is definitely the default if you're going below the diaphragm. I, I do sometimes use the right radial if you're doing a, um, you know, right internal thoracic artery cannulation sure, sure. or even, uh, you know, a right, right arm. Sometimes when we do bone embolization, the humerus, we use the right radial if it's the right arm, but it's very rare. Uh, so absolutely, left radial is the default. Uh, number one, you don't have to cross the great vessels uh, from, the, from the left side which is critical. Uh, also the distance from the right radial compared to the left is about 15 centimeters longer. And so that really negates a lot of the, uh, you know, the advantages that you get in the length. Um, so 
there, there's really no reason to use the right radio. Uh, and so if I had a decision to, to, to use the left radio or the right radio or the femoral, I would probably say the order that I would use those is left radio, femoral, and then I actually I would never use right radio unless there was a, a reason to. Sure. Um, so uh, knowing that, uh, I typically position the arm uh, down by the side, and I use a femoral drape, and I, and I prep the patient almost the same way you would prep a left femoral. Uh, so the arm is very close to the side of the body, mm-hmm. and that that practice sort of came came to be out of uh, the, out of necessity because we were doing a lot of comb beam CT at the time, and we were having a hard time uh, with the arm out almost in a, in a in a perpendicular fashion. So the first hundred two hundred cases we did from our transradial approach, we sort of set it up like a dialysis case where we had the arm out by the side, and and that was it, you know, it worked. I mean, we got access very easily and we would we would sort of ergonomically uh, be able to sort of operate with 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 the same hand that you were using the you know from the femoral approach but right it was it was difficult to do comb beam ct it was also difficult to prep the patient and use the same drapes and you sort of had to have extra room on that side of the the room so once we move the arm in to the side and we access with the arm in and we we do comb beam cts with the arm in uh, it was really not an issue and so uh, it feels like you're you're doing a left femoral access and the room set up that way um and you know i i i sometimes will tell the fellows that if you're if you're going to do femoral and, and and you're not using the radial access it's okay to use the left femoral i think we always sort of default to the right femoral uh, as the you know the, the the femoral that we like to use but, sure. but the reality is that you can use the, the left femoral um almost almost to practice setting up the room um the way that you would potentially do use during a radial access. So um, I sometimes will tell people that if you, uh, if you start out doing radial access, maybe do a, you know, five or 10 cases from the left femoral and see how the room setup works for you. Okay. Yeah. Cause actually one of the things I, I ran into early on when I was doing radial access and, and nothing against my cath lab team, they're actually fantastic and they're, and they're pretty comfortable with radial access. Cause I, I split time with cardiologists. Um, but uh, the, cardiologist radial setup is is actually a little bit different from mine and i found yeah. like i was i was struggling a lot with ergonomics like you're just keeping everything in in front of me um and 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 so i was just curious but arm down the by the side um does eliminate some of those problems i guess in in, in that situation you're you're working left-handed so you just have it's almost like a femoral just like you said a left femoral case where um, you know, the, your catheter advancement was right hand, but wire pinnings left hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, that's why I say if you can do, you know, a left femoral case as easily, as easily as you can do a right femoral case, you're, you're fine to do that. Um, uh, but you know, I remember feeling when we, when we were doing femoral cases from the left, very awkward, you know, many years ago. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's not unusual to feel awkward doing radial case in the beginning from the other side of the table. It, it's, but you know, I, as IRs, I, I think we're very adept at sort of going from groin to neck to liver to spleen sure. and moving around the, the, the body and, and uh, cardiologists are not as adept in my view. Um, so they're very, you know, drawn to one side of the table. I, I think we're a little bit different and I think it's important for us to be versatile and move around. Sure. Um, let me let me ask you this. One of the one of our uh, back table listeners was very interested in in closure devices for for radial access. I'll say uh-huh. that I, I've used the Tarumo TR band and, and it's been phenomenal. I'm sure there are some other ones out there. Um, maybe maybe you're more familiar with them, and maybe there's some other cooler stuff out there that I don't even know about. 
Well, there's a lot actually. Um, the TR band was the first one that I use, and, and the one that I use for the for the majority of my cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it works great. You know, one of the problems that I've come across is that it was really designed for right radial because when you look through the window on the on the TR band, um, it's hard to actually see through it from the left radial side. That's really the biggest issue. But outside of that, uh, it works phenomenal. And 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 there's not, you know, there's there's definitely room for improvement in, in developing these devices. And um, you know, we can talk about that a little bit later. But but since since then. Uh, there's been several devices that have come come uh, come to the market, to, and we use um, not infrequently. Uh, Merit has probably three or four different bands now. Uh, they have a uh, a band that also allows you to access the distal radial artery very easily, and then and then um, it's a band that sort of wraps around the the thumb, which is very cool. Hmm. Uh, there's also a band um, that sort of creates a little bit more pinpoint. On, on the vessel as opposed to sort of a broad-based pressure, which is uh, made by Forge Medical. Uh, the Vasostat device, which which is used also for pedal access. And so there's a lot of different devices that I think um, can make that patent hemostasis process a little bit easier. Uh, and so we've, we've, we've demoed those and used those and helped design those over the years. And you'll probably see more of them in the coming years as well that are uh, going to be able to do more than just press a little bit on the radial artery. Uh, so, you know, the TR band's great, and mm-hmm. that's that's our our device like of choice. Yeah, but you know, you'll you'll it's okay to to use other devices. I think I think the the concept in general is that you uh, use the patent hemostasis concept, and 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 that's the most important thing. So, whatever device you use, as long as you're doing that, I think you'll be fine. And you know that's it's probably a good a good enough time as any to to drill down on on what exactly you mean by by patent hemostasis and and also specifically I mean I don't I don't want to pin you down too much but um, I find that when people talk about radial access and in, in their closures um, like you know I, I figured like I would not have to reinvent the wheel wheel when it came to you know the the protocol for removing the TR band which is the only uh, radial closure I've used. Um, but surprisingly, people people are all not all over the map, but there's there's some fair variation when it comes to, you know, how long people keep the TR band and their deflation. And so maybe it doesn't matter all that much. But let, let's talk a little bit about like what you mean by patent hemostasis exactly. And then specifically, you know, what that means in terms of your protocol for removing the TR band. Well, patent hemostasis is really the concept of putting on the putting on a band of some sort. Um, but allowing the vessel to to remain patent during the process, and so the critical step is when you put the band on, you fill it up with air, and then you deflate it until you get uh, blood flow in the vessel, and then and then you leave that up for a certain period of time. Um, the way you document that is usually by using uh, either blood return or uh, pulse check or using ulnar compression and looking at the waveform. So there's lots of different ways to document that the vessel is open. But the critical thing is to, is to show to yourself that the vessel is open at the end of the process of putting the band on. Um, okay. and, then, and then how long you leave it on is really operator dependent. I mean, we started out doing two hours, which is probably way too long. And we right. dropped down to an hour and a half. And we were very conservative at the beginning. And now we, we do an hour. Uh, with the with the band, and that's generally enough. But remember, some people you may have to keep it on a little bit longer. Uh, but I, I I typically say about an hour is is my uh, standard. Uh, but there are people that do even thirty minutes. 
Um, there are there, there's actually protocols that start taking air down at 15 minutes, depending on on what device they're using. That's probably a little bit too soon, but you know you have to think about what your goal is. Is your goal to get the the band off in you know in 30 minutes? If the patient's going to be in your recovery room for an hour or two hours, you probably don't need to take the band off that soon. But the, right. the key is to remember that you want to make sure the vessel is patent and the vessel is not occluded at the end of the case. Okay. Um, well, I guess the, the reason uh, I was I was kind of interested in it, and, and you're right, then, you know, how, how long you keep it on, I, I think it all, uh, it, it's not too big of a deal if you're talking about a patient who's going to, you know, be in your recovery longer than two hours. But, you know, there are some times when, you know, if you're talking about a Y90 treatment, you know, um, you know, I, I feel like one of the things that they're hanging around for is, you know, just to get the band off. And so, um I, I think, you know, a quicker, you know, like, like you touched on 60 minutes, um, that really cuts down on, you know, the onus on the recovery people. Like if you can get that patient out an hour earlier than, than you would, and, and you don't really derive any benefit for keeping the TR band on longer then yeah, I think that's good to hear. An hour is um, a good, good amount of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I, I, you know, ultimately, uh, you have to think about what the case is. If somebody's coming in for a Y90, yeah. I mean, it makes sense to, to get the right center. We've looked at this. We've looked at at Y ninety and and patients who um, you know discharge times and uh, you know it's clearly a lot better when you compare it to femoral access. There's no no question about that. And and you know to draw in comparison, I, I mentioned earlier that we we split time with some of the cardiologists. And, and originally I was just going to use the cardiologist protocol, but you know so their their protocol actually uh, keeps it on. I think uh, yeah, 120 minutes, and then they start the deflation process and. But, you know, different patient populations, certainly majority of their patients are anticoagulated for right. you know, treatments. And, and I think they just simplified all. Like they don't differentiate between diagnostic and treatment. So, but anyway. Um, the, the cardiologists obviously, you know, do things a little bit differently. Yes. But yeah, the, these, these patients are very, uh, you know, heavily anticoagulated. And so right. the, the time may be different compared to what we're doing. Agreed. Um, talking about maybe uh, – Besides uh, selecting vessels like outside your your celiac SMA and you know hypertrophy uterine, um, one of the things that I kind of find daunting is selecting you know maybe a slightly harder to get to vessel. Like I think a good example would be like a, a bronchial artery, um, mm-hmm. an IMA. Mm-hmm. Um, any any suggestions on yeah. on you know being a little bit nervous? Maybe you feel pretty good about your radial access and that. You know, you can slip into, you know, a nice celiac, but, you know, something a little harder to select. You know, it, the it's interesting that you said bronchial artery because I've always thought that the bronchial artery has been one of those procedures where it's actually pretty easy to do this from a femoral approach, whereas the radial approach, it's a little bit more challenging. Not that you can't do it, and we've done mm-hmm. that, uh, but I, I actually like to do bronchial embos from the groin, um, you know, unless there's a specific reason to do radial uh, that being said, um, I, you know I'll I'll use the Sarah radial catheter from the groin in a lot of those cases because it it, it actually mm. sits really well in the bronchioles from the opposite side. Uh, you know that's just my personal preference. IMA, um, I find that the Sarah will typically reach in most people, um, mm. and and that works really well. Ovarians, you know, very rarely do we have to cannulate an ovarian, but if we do, um, I think the Sarah works well for that. Sarah Jackie type catheter. Um, you know, it's one of those catheters that's so versatile because it just has such good wall opposition in the aorta that you can really access a lot of these these branch vessels anywhere, you know, down to the bifurcation without too much of a problem. 
Um, and actually now we have a 125 length ultimate catheter that can get us down into the pelvis. And so you could probably even use those for, uh, you know, uterine and, 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 and uh, prostate as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not always easy to do bronchials as you were, as you were mentioning, but, uh, you can do it. I, I personally like to do bronchials from the groin though. Okay. Good tip. Um, think about other things that are kind of, can, can be a little, uh, maybe daunting about radial access is we hear a lot about vasospasm. I think now's a good enough time. I mean, miraculously we're, we're probably 30 minutes in and we haven't actually mentioned the radial cocktail obligatory. So, um, you want to talk about that a little bit, Aaron? Sure. The, you know, the cocktail is something that, uh, everybody has a different one. Um, and, you know, people always ask what's the cocktail that we use. And we, we talk about this when we do training courses, it's pretty simple. I mean, we, we use uh, heparin, nitroglycerin, and verapamil. The doses are, are sort of randomly picked, really, because <laughs> um, when we first started doing uh, this, I went on a website called Transradial University, and I just looked at different cocktails that cardiologists were, used and I, were using at the time. And I really just picked something that I thought was easy for our nurses to, to, to draw up, and I knew that our verapamil came in five milligram vials. And so I said, why don't we just use half of that? And then we use a little bit of nitro, uh, around 200 nitro. And then I, I use 3000 of heparin. And that's just been my, uh, you know, you can use whatever you want, to be honest. I think, okay. I think using heparin is, is pretty important. Uh, and nitro I think is really important too. Verapamil, I know a lot of operators don't use a, a you know, a calcium channel blocker. Uh, there are cardiologists that will will use uh, instead of verapamil to use nicardipine. Um, Maybe a that, price There's diff- there. definitely cost yeah cost differences there. You know you have to sort of look and see what's what's easier for you. Um, but you definitely need to use something. It's not it's not like uh, you know the femoral where you just put the catheter in. Uh, you really need to use use something that vasodilates and 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 tries to reduce vasospasm because this vessel is not not a not a big vessel and. Um, even in a you know somebody who has a three millimeter radial, which is in the radial is, is a big vessel, Huge. Right. Uh, you know putting in a putting in a sheath is is going to create a lot of vasospasm. Okay, have you uh, and and I feel like vasospasm is something that gets talked about a lot. Um, and but I, I'm talking about the the vasospasm that like you might see in a conference where it's vasospasm that's so intense where you can't pull out the catheter. Um, have you had that happen to you? And and if you have. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's you know the, this is the, these are the cases where you know these this is very rare when you when you have severe vasospasm. So number one, make sure you're using a hydrophilic sheath. Right, right. That's will come out um, even with severe vasospasm. But uh, what you do, uh, and this is you know we're talking about like one of the thousand type type cases where the cat the sheath is really stuck. Okay. Um, and so what you do is you you take your catheter out if you can, and if the sheath's stuck you need to give more cocktail. And so I'll usually start with just nitro uh, and, and, and give a lot of nitro until uh, I, I, you know, I feel like I can't give much more and you wait, you really want to make sure that the patient is heavily sedated. Um, You you don't want to rush. You don't want to just pull the catheter, pull the sheath out. If it's stuck, Mm -hmm. Uh, you want to really sedate the patient. So they, so they, they relax a little bit. Um, and wait. I mean, if it takes an hour to get the sheath out, it's better than, um, you know, it's better than, you know, injuring the vessel. Um, and if that doesn't work, the other option is to uh, to even access the groin and come up 
from from the from below and, and deliver some of those vasodilators directly into the vessel from above, and that sometimes helps. Um, I've never had to do that, but but I know okay. people that have. Sure. <laughs> and then, okay, it, you know, in a rare scenario, you could give general anesthesia, and that's not something that I've ever had to do. But I know people that have stopped before um, they've done that, and they've pulled even harder on the sheath, and they've you know they've injured the vessel that way. So there's a lot of different ways to deal with that. If it happens, um, the most important thing is to not rush and to not just pull the sheath out. Okay, good tips. Um, one of the things that I feel like also gets uh, a lot of a lot of discussion um, to pe- to people who who are are not comfortable with uh, radial access is uh, stroke. Um, you know, it, it's it's reported um, in the in the cardiology literature. Um, anecdotally, can you, or, you know, maybe, you know, talking about the literature a little bit and then also anecdotally, but you know, how you feel about that or do you counsel your patients regarding it? Yeah. You know, you know, this is something that comes up almost every time you have a discussion about radial access in a, in a meeting. Right. That's what I felt group. obligated and, and it's to important. mention. That, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's not something to take lightly. Um, there have been reports of stroke in the literature and there's even reports that I've heard about outside of the literature that, uh, you know, have not been reported, uh, but people have talked about, uh, and, you know, and really what it comes down to is, yeah, we could look at the cardiology literature and compare, um, you know, right radial versus left radial and femoral versus radial and cardiology, but it really doesn't apply to us because we're not really accessing the ascending aorta. We're accessing the descending aorta. Sure. So the data from cardiology is not super relevant for us. Um, the only vessel that we're crossing, really, from the radial approach is the uh, the left vertebral. Right. And so if you remember that paper from uh, Miami, uh, Beninati's group that looked at, uh, you know, an 89-year-old gentleman who had a uh, Y90 from the femoral, femoral approach um, and had multiple catheter exchanges and developed a posterior fossa stroke, um, you sort of have to wonder whether that was a, a good patient for uh, radio access. And so the question is, well, should you screen people for uh, disease in their arch? Um, I don't do that typically, but I use common sense. And so if I know somebody's elderly um, and I know that they have a lot of atherosclerotic disease, and again, a lot of the patients that we're doing do not have that, right? Chemobilization sure. patients, fibroid patients, they're not always those type of, type of uh, you know, severe atherosclerotic disease patients. So you have to think about that. If you encounter somebody who you think uh, might might be in that category. You have to really think about whether radio access is the, is is the right way to go. Um, do I counsel patients? Absolutely. When people talk to me about uh, you know which access, and so a great example would be a prostate embolization case, and they they say you know these are older men, right? And sure. so they come in and they say, well, you know, can you really reach uh, you know the from the wrist? And I said, well, that's you can absolutely reach. And they said, well, well, why would anybody want to do it from the groin? And then we have that discussion. Um, you know, and I tell them, you know, stroke is something that can happen uh, regardless of the approach, but it could potentially be higher from uh, the radial approach because we're crossing that one vessel. Um, but, you know, there are people who form femoral catheters in the, in the arch. Um, and so I would argue that if, you, if you're one of those types of operators that does that, you're probably creating more trauma to the arch than if you were doing a radial cannulation. Sure. Um, so you have to think about your practice and what you do, um, but you always have to be vigilant. Um, when you remove the catheter, I always remove the catheter over wire. I don't pull the catheter out of wire because I think that that can also create trauma to the vertebral if you're not careful. Sure. Um, 
but uh, and then if you're coming down the arch, you know, do you form your catheter? Uh, if you can't get down the arch, are you forming your catheter in the ascending? And I sometimes will do that, but I do it using a specific technique. Uh, you often using a Simmons catheter, and I find that creates uh, the most uh, or the least uh, traumatic way to, to access the descending aorta without cannulating the, the carotids or doing anything like that. Okay, like a little sim one where you just kind of form it in the ascending, then pull back, and you're directed, you know, exactly. posteriorly. Yeah. You're not, okay. yeah, you're never pointing up. You're always pointing yeah. down. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, look, it doesn't mean that it can't happen. I know it's happened, right. but I think vigilant, vigilant technique and patient selection is is really important. So obviously not everybody's a good candidate for radio. You have to think about it. Yeah. And and actually, the the I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the sim one. Uh, the, re, the reason I had it in my notes here, you know, Prepping for this uh, podcast, one of the things I came across is there was a there was a great video. It's it's like radial access basics. That's on the JVIR website. I think I actually had it pulled open. Um, yeah, it's just called Transradial Interventional Basics. Of course, it looks like Dr. Patel, uh, and then yeah. here we Dr. Fishman's attached to this. So this this I thought was you know for for listeners out there fantastic uh starter on just you know the nuts and bolts of radial access um and there's actually a lot of other good resources out there i saw you had a uh aaron so you had a nice vu medi uh lecture it was you and a couple other guys right so so a couple things that the jvr basics article or the video is 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 excellent that was done by amish patel who was um at the time he was one of our uh residents and fellows at sinai and he put that together you know several we about i think that was about five six years ago now um yeah what, what i what i think is probably the most um the most educational at least from my perspective is our treat symposium.com website which has uh live cases on there and there's a lot of different things and actually this year we're going to add eight more cases that we did live um from uh this this year's symposium it's treat symposium.com or org either one nice. uh, so you can get a lot of different, uh, you know, basic and advanced techniques there. And those are all videos. Uh, but obviously there's journal articles too that you can sure. go over. But I, I, you know, I, I think people like watching these things and sort of seeing that discussion. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of good info out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'm actually in, in total agreement that, you know, I think the articles, I mean, that that's the classic mode and, it, and it's fantastic to have an article to reference, you know, especially if you're looking up for the radial cocktail or something, but you know, there's something about, you know, watching, uh, you know, someone actually uh, do some of these things and show you room setup and talk about navigating an arch and seeing it done like on a short clip that that's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, what, you know, we're, we're getting close to you and I'll, I'll ask you, uh, Aaron, what do you think about uh, any, any ideas for the, the future of radial access? I mean, I see people going, you know, very distal radial artery. Yeah, you know, that's we've been doing a little bit more of that recently. I know there's a lot of people that feel really strongly about that in cardiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. K, who's out in the Netherlands, who did, you know, obviously the first, some of the first radial procedures in the world uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. He's a big proponent of that. Uh, one of my colleagues in Canada, Darren Class, is a huge proponent of distal radial. And, um, you know, we may be starting a clinical trial looking at, looking at that in terms of, um, you know how long the patent hemostasis process takes patient quality outcomes things like that that's an interesting concept it may not be uh you know for every procedure but uh, you know for the liver procedures i think it's adequate to to reach from the distal radial i think for the pelvic procedures it can be 
challenging like you for your prostate. Sure. Um, so I haven't used it for that. But there are, you know, I'll just give you an example. There was a patient not that long ago that came in for a, a bone embo in her in her arm and couldn't rotate her, her wrists or supinate her wrists to, to do a traditional access. And so it's actually very comfortable for a lot of patients to keep their arm, uh, you know, very close to their side without supinating it. And I think that's, that's a great uh, use of that, that technique. Um, we did our bariatric embolization trial using uh, radial access. And, that, you know, I think it goes without saying that if bariatric embolization ever becomes uh, something that we use, uh, you know, regularly, I think radial mm-hmm. access would be, would be you know, super valuable in, in that procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And, for the and, patient population. and now, you know, looking to the future, and this is something that we did very, you know, we did three cases this year at our, at our symposium from uh, a radio approach where we, we treated patients above the knee and below the knee for PAD. And, and there's a lot of interest in that. There's new devices, new catheters, new, new hydrophilic sheaths, um, atherectomy is available, different balloons and stents now. So, you know, the industry has listened to us uh, very, very carefully, and they've helped uh, design the devices that allow us to treat PAD, not just iliac PAD, but but real, you know, distal leg PAD, uh, you know, from the radial approach. And so we, we've we've really adopted that practice at Mount Sinai, and it's been it's been great. And so we have a lot of uh, experience with that now. Um, so that, I think those are sort of the big categories uh, of what we're sort of thinking about for the future. But clearly, there's things that we probably haven't come up with yet. Sure, sure. Well, that's been great. So I think uh, I think we've we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, I'll, I'll tell our listeners, you know, I think you know both me and Dr. Fishman have actually referenced uh, a couple of different good resources for radial access. Um, what I think what you know the back table guys will try and do, we'll either try and tweet this tweet this uh, podcast out and maybe have the references listed below or guys you know you can always check out the website www.backtable.com or download uh the mobile app for your iphones or android of course it's free and you know we have a, a radial access um topic where we'll post uh, as much as the uh, or we'll aggregate as much of these resources together for you guys as possible um aaron uh or dr fishman thank you very much for coming on uh really appreciate it thank you thanks guys this was great all right Thanks, guys. Take care.